Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll give folks just a couple minutes to get into the webinar, uh, and then we will get started. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's SNEB webinar. My name is Paul Bierman. I am the Director of Education and Events for SNEB. Uh, we're glad to have you join us today for this webinar featuring the staff of the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, the Society's peer-reviewed journal. JNEB advances nutrition, education, and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. Before we begin, I'd like to review a few pieces of information. Uh, I will be putting the handout for today's webinar uh, into the chat for you to download. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, throughout uh, the presentations, please type any questions you may have into the Q&A section of your screen, and they will be moderated out to our panelists. When the webinar ends today, you will be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete that survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated for planning of future SNEB webinars. This webinar is being recorded and it will be available free of charge to SNEB members uh, in the webinar section of the website. Finally, be on the lookout for a follow-up email sent by Friday of this week, which will include a link to the recording for this session, the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. Uh, the webinar will be um, hosted in Zoom. With all that being said, uh, I'm excited to introduce the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, Dr. Lauren Haldeman, Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Lauren? Thanks very much, Paul. And uh, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us this afternoon. I'm going to start sharing here. Okay, there we go. I think we're in good shape here. Okay, so um, we're really happy to be able to present this webinar today. And as Paul said, I'm the um, 
editor-in-chief. I've been in the position for a year now, and I'm really excited to be here to talk with you today about um, the publishing process for JNEB, common questions, um, as well as opportunities to engage more with the journal. We really would love for you to engage with us, and there's many opportunities for us to do that, which we'll talk about um, throughout the webinar. And it really, this webinar really came out of the interests of the membership, as well as my interest in becoming more visible, having our awesome editorial staff become more visible to all of you and accessible. Um, we'd really like to um, uh, make this an opportunity as productive as possible. So in preparation for this, we did send out uh, a little survey. Uh, this was actually back in October when we had to reschedule, um, but a survey to find out what uh, members would like to know about. And um, so we've incorporated that information into the webinar. And we'll also have time at the end of the webinar for you to ask your own questions. And we'll have one of our um, panelists moderate that for us so we can get all of your questions in as best as we can. But before, we get moving. Um, I'd really like for you to meet our panelists, um, which is our uh, includes our editorial staff. So if each one of our panelists would introduce themselves, please. Hi there, my name is Susan Johnson. I'm a senior associate editor uh, at JNEB. I come to you from the University of Colorado Denver at the Anschutz Medical Campus. Hi everybody, I'm Pamela rothblitz I'm an associate editor and I'm a professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey. I'm Chris Taylor. I'm an associate editor and professor at The Ohio State University. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm Madeline Sigmund Grant. I'm a Professor Emeritus from University of Nevada, Reno, and I don't know why my picture isn't, my video isn't working. <laughs> I can see you, Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Amy Mobley. I'm also an associate editor, and I am an associate professor in health education and behavior at the University of Florida. Hi, everyone. My name is Jared Ward. I'm an associate editor. I also lead the social media for JNEB, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition at UNC Greensboro. Hi, my name is Lexi McMillan Uribe. I am the mentored editor for JNEB, and I am an assistant professor at the Texas A&M Institute for Advancing Health through Agriculture. Hey, I'm Emily Hegerman. I'm the managing editor of JNEB, and I'm based in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we have a fabulous editorial staff who are always willing to help um, and answer questions as you navigate the publication process. So let's go. So just quickly, we have our disclosures here um, included. And we also, for um, this presentation, there are a few um, nutrition educator competencies that um, will be met during the course of this webinar. So let's get to it. When you are uh, thinking about or considering um, submitting your manuscript to JNEB, there are a few things that really you, you first want to familiarize yourself with. 
And these are all, this is all information that you can find on JNEB.org under our guidelines for authors. But I wanted to touch base on a couple of them for you. I won't go through all of them, but uh, the, the importance of taking a look at your policy, the policies, um, is because many of them require some type of statement within your manuscript before you submit. Uh, so for instance, if you're looking at, um, if you are either sharing data or using shared data, you would provide a statement within the manuscript to um, let the uh, reviewers know that this is the case. And that statement is actually word for word in the guidelines for authors. Um, we also have a, a, a policy on artificial intelligence um, that if you're using AI for any of um, the editing or reviewing of your manuscript, that that's something that does have to be disclosed in the uh, manuscript. When we're talking about authorship, there are, there are um, questions that you have to ask yourself in terms of your authorship. So what is the contribution of each author um, to the manuscript? And then that will help you to determine how that authorship will look on your submission. So there's a lot of detail in the guidelines for, your, for authors. And, and once um, in, in a couple of slides here, Madeline will talk more specifically about those. With papers that have human subjects um, in the uh, research itself, there are certain requirements in terms of the IRB statements or those ethical statements that are important for you to be aware of ahead of time, specific wording, whether this was a full review or an expedited review or an exempt review. So those are things that are looked at specifically when new submissions come in um, as well as others, as well as preprints and um, conflicts, disclosure of conflict of interests and copyright. Those are all uh, pieces of information in a manuscript that are looked at initially, as soon as the papers come in. And um, if they're missing, then you'll be contacted by our managing editor to have that information included into the manuscript. So just as a heads up that um, before you go about even submitting, that you familiarize yourself with these so that you have the statements, the appropriate information already into the um, manuscript. And a big part of that also is it helps to save time. Um, otherwise, you're going to get an email from our managing editor saying, can you please be more specific with your IRB statement? Or um, do you have um, um, other information that has to be included in there? So um, just be aware that in the interest of time, it would be good for you to familiarize yourself with these policies. And as I mentioned, they are readily accessible on our guidelines for authors on jneb.org. So also when you're considering JNEB, um, the first thing that you really wanna do is assess the fit. Take a look at our website and look at the aims and the scope of JNEB. And um, the aims and scope evolve. So we've um, we've talked as, as, as an editorial staff in the past about is, is there anything else that we need to include in our aims and scope, but it's important for you to take a look at that to see if your paper fits. And if you aren't sure, ask. I get a lot of um, abstracts that come through um, from authors saying, is this something that would fit? Um, what kind of paper would this be? And I'm happy to answer those questions um, as all of us are happy to help navigate through the publication process if you've got questions. Another question to really think about is, are you responding to a specific call for papers? So as a journal, we 
put out call a call for papers um, pretty regularly, um, addressing topics in nutrition education that are timely, that are hot, um, that um, we feel we need to focus on more in the journal. So for instance, we will be having a call for paper coming out very soon on GEMS for people to submit GEMS. We've had calls for papers on technology and nutrition education. And um, we'll have calls for papers on nutrition education among older adults or nutrition education and psychosocial correlates, nutrition education and health literacy. Um, we look for program papers, uh, papers that might focus on WIC or SNAP-Ed or some other type of program that you might be working on. Those call for papers come out regularly. They come out through email. They're also identified on banners on the top of the jneb.org website. So they're pretty readily visible. If you're not quite sure though, we also have a location specifically set aside on our website that says call for papers. So you can go ahead and take a look at what calls are out there. And I just wanna clarify that while we might have a call for paper out call for papers out for GEMS now, that doesn't mean that you can't be answering a call for papers that was um, previously put out. And I and we get a lot of questions about that. So feel free if that's something that you like to submit to. When you submit your paper, you can identify that you are submitting for a call for papers and you can be specific in what call that is. We also, um, it's also important to determine the manuscript type. And I'm not gonna go over this in detail right now because Madeline will in the next slide, but trying to determine if your paper is a research article or research brief, sometimes that's tricky. Um, please feel free to reach out on that. And um, again, utilize the guidelines for authors. You'll submit through Editorial Manager. So our, our um, system for submitting um, is called Editorial Manager. And once that is once that uh, um, paper is submitted, it will go through the peer review process, which will, will first starts with just going over um, whether or not the initial submission should go move on to an associate editor. Editor, and again, that will be something that we'll discuss a little bit further in the webinar. Once it goes through the peer review process, if the paper is accepted, there um, there might be multiple. Uh, steps to the review. Once it's accepted, um, you will receive, you, your responsibility hasn't ended. You'll receive proofs to take a look at um, the uh, mock-up of the paper to see if there's anything else that needs to be changed, any edits that you need to make. And I, I just want to um, also highlight that the faster that you turn around those proofs, back to our managing editor, the faster we can move it through the process. So I really encourage you when you get your paper accepted and you get those proofs that you turn those around quickly so that we can turn them around quickly and we can get the production process started. So that's just kind of in a nutshell. We're gonna break it down a little bit more in the next slides. Um, next, Madeline will talk specifically about the guidelines for authors and how you can utilize those as a great tool for when you're submitting. Okay, let's see if we come up. Okay, if there's one thing you take away from this webinar is use the guidelines for authors. It will save you time during the submission and the decision process. Um, you can use it to construct your paper, you use it for the uh, looking at the JNEB policies and, and use it for if you have specific questions. 
Warren, could you put up the next slide? So um, we are in the process of reformatting the website um, for the journal guidelines for authors so that we're consistent across um, all platforms. Um, and we, we want to be able to have our links working, um, we, but we still will have a three main sections. So before you begin is what Lauren just covered about our policies. And again, very, very detailed. Um, Lauren kind of alluded to this over the years, there have been, um, the guidelines have been updated and revised by the editors-in-chief, by the members of the um, editorial staff, and by the journal committee members. Um, most of the policies and, and what are in the guidelines um, will not be revised. It'll just be reformatted so that you can make, um, find your, your questions answered very quickly. So in the manuscript, prep, manuscript preparation, we are very detailed. Um, I think we're probably different than a lot of other journals where we do provide you with a lot of guidance. Um, we provide you with what we expect. We provide you with examples of um, uh, other papers that have been published so that you get a feel for what you need to do. So in the manuscript preparation, there's, title, there's, some, there's information about titles, the categories, um, the abstracts, and then our style and form. And Lauren asked me to cover a little bit about the, the categories. Um, there's actually three different research article categories, the full and the brief. Um, the di distinction between them usually has to do with the audience or the si sample size, and you can find out more detail um, in the guidelines. And then we have several different methods papers, um, some on interventions and some on questionnaire design. We also have a report section. We have a systematic review section. We have a pers perspective and then the GEMS, which is great educational material. Um, after except there's another part of the, of the um, guidelines for authors that will help you follow through with, if you're accepted, what needs to be done. So, Lauren, let's go through the review process. So, the, when you submit your manuscript through the, um, through the website, it is screened first for all those policy issues that Lauren alluded to. And then the manuscript goes to, to the editor-in-chief and the senior associate editor, who, which is Susan, and they, see, they look for it for fit. So, do you meet the scopes and aims of the journal? If they determine at that point um, that it, your specific submission is not does not meet the fit, then it's projected. If it is does meet the fit, then it's assigned to one of the associate editors, and that person will be following that paper and those authors throughout the rest of the process. The per, that person, say it was me, I then assigned some reviewers, a, a member of the board of editors, and one or two other reviewers with experts who are experts in the topic area. The rigor, the relevance, and the novelty. This is the, probably the area where things get bogged down because it does take us a while to identify reviewers who are willing to review the paper. So if you are an author, I encourage you to be a reviewer because we need both. <laughs> so then after the reviewers send back the reviews to the um, handling um, editor, 
associate editor. A decision is made and you will receive um, that decision again through our system, either reject or revise. Um, if you're asked to revise, then the paper is returned to the author to address all the concerns and questions that the reviewers might have had. And we then send it back we being the handling associate editor, sends it back hopefully to the original reviewers so that we have consistency throughout the review process. And this continues until a final decision is made, whether it be um, accept, accept with conditions, or reject. And so now I'm going to turn it over to Chris, who's going to talk to you a little bit about some of the bigger concerns that our reviewers have identified. Thank you, Madeline. Um, yes, and I think one of the most common things that we hear back from reviewers um, across all the different papers that we'll look at are uh, items around different authors not following the author guidelines. So there are particular sections, which means uh, what kinds of things should be in the methods, what kinds of things should be in the results, uh, the discussion, the implications. And when sections are missing, those are the types of expectations that re reviewers are looking for for key pieces of information. Um, so once again, really looking at those author guidelines and making sure that you have all, all the pieces that are being expected for the review um, makes for happy reviewers. Um, then the next step is one of the more other common things we see is around clearly defining what the gap in the science is to be addressed. I know sometimes as we kind of get the whole big picture in our mind, we, we connect all the dots in our mind, but we have to also connect all the dots um, for the reader themselves. So really tying that to that research question refining that research question, tying it back to the literature and creating that storyline that helps the reader understand why is this the next step of what we need to do. Um, one of the other areas where we see a lot of reviewer comments is around uh, the research methodology, uh, everything from recruitment of individuals and inclusion criteria, um, what are the different um, intervention strategies, the number of subjects, the measurement techniques, um, have the measurements been validated? Um, so providing the references and the details for all of the steps to go from cap or capturing the sample down through the measurement and into the analysis um, so that they can clearly follow all the parts and the pieces aren't missing. Um, especially around interventions and providing that intervention detail so that the reviewer can actually read and understand what the participants went through so that they can determine what that magnitude of outcome um, should be. Um, another area where we see is um, the use of theory. And I always kind of describe these as theory-informed interventions or theory-based interventions. Um, we have a lot of places where theory can be very helpful in helping to shape the work and the interventions that we do. But if the, if the intervention is gonna be based on a particular theory, it shouldn't only show up in the introduction as we are going to use this for a theory, it should then show up in how those constructs are being used in the intervention how that maps out into the into the results. How does that map out into the discussion? 
Uh, otherwise, we've, it's been informed by, and then we don't hear anything about the theory after uh, maybe the first line of the methods. Um, and then uh, as well, the interpretation of data and discussion of what the findings are within the limitations of what that data and the study design are. Um, we'll see a lot of correlational studies that are then either interpreted based as causation. Um, so we need to stay within the parameters of the type of data that we have. Um, if there are limitations and not significant findings as a result of an intervention, we need to then describe the findings as non-significant differences. And then in the implications, what would be those future steps that might need to be addressed um, if the thought process is, this is still important, just my data didn't show it. Um, so we need to be able to make that kind of argument. And then finally, statistical analysis is another area where we see a lot of um, leaner details. Um, so really providing the descriptions of what type of analyses are conducted, defining the independent and dependent variables as opposed to look for differences in continuous and categorical variables using chi-square and t-test. Um, so being able to provide what the actual analyses are, um, making sure they're aligned with the types of data and the design that you have, um, and also defining what controls might be used in the analysis. And would this be control for baseline in trials? Is this uh, controlling for site that you would need for clustered randomized trials? Are you using other cluster or other control variables for the analysis itself to account for um, confounding within that? But making sure that as you read down through the methods are clear how the data is collected, what form that data is in, and then how is that data then used in the analysis so that we can see it play out within the results. So making sure that we can track that all the way through, and then we're able to discuss that within the discussion. So I will then pass it forward to Susan to talk about responding to reviewer comments. Thanks, Chris. I um, appreciate the nod that both Madeline and Chris have made to the kinds of things that you can do to increase the chances of your manuscript having smooth sailing. And, and I'm just going to take the opportunity unbidden to say again that if you look at those guidelines for authors, those have so much information to help you ease the process of having your manuscript review. The other little nod that I would point out is that for reviewers, there are often links within the um, guidelines for authors that take you to the kinds of things that you should be looking for when you're reviewing a certain kind of paper. I will say for the authors that it's in your best interest to go look at those suggestions to reviewers and make sure you cover your bases when you are developing your manuscript so that you can anticipate what reviewers will be looking for. Um, when you get back the comments of your papers for, from the reviewers, should it be a revised decision? And even if it's not for that matter, it's important to really be thoughtful about each comment that is made to you. And I will say as somebody who authors papers and gets those reviewer comments back myself, 
my first read happens the day I get it and I put it in a drawer for a couple of days and then I come back and I do it again because then my head is usually in a much better place to entertain what that feedback is. Because sometimes I think, well, it was right there. You just didn't see it. Um, if a reviewer asks a question, it's not because they're being difficult. It's because they didn't get it. And so it may very well be in your manuscript, but it might not have been in a way that the reviewer could see it. And so it's important to take those comments and really try to be relatively even keeled about it and say, okay, how can I make sure that I make it clearer to the reader what the reviewer is asking about? And that I'd say will be the case for oh, I'll put some number on it, but not be held to it. But, uh, most of the, the reviewer comments that you'll get, get back. From time to time, there may be a reviewer comment where you think, no, I just don't agree with that. And I believe that the choice that we made in doing things this way was the appropriate way to do it. And it's okay to have some of that in your response to reviewers. However, you can't just say it's because you think it's that way. You need to support that with cases from the literature that either support your approach to how you did it or show that, yes, in fact, this is a credible way to go about things. So every once in a while, you rebut instead of changing everything that the reviewer is asking you to do. And that's okay. It just can't be the majority of, of what you're writing back. It says, if you're unclear on a comment, ask your editor. I, I strongly encourage you to do that when you are truly scratching your head and not quite understanding where this is coming from to help you prepare a, a better response to that reviewer. Send back your manuscript clearly indicating, preferably highlighting in yellow, where you have made the changes that have been asked for. There's one exception to this rule. If you've been asked to retool the manuscript so dramatically that it's going to change most of a section or most of an area, you needn't highlight that whole thing, but instead indicate that in your response to reviewers and also give a nod to where this is occurring in the manuscript. You needn't highlight pages upon pages. It is easiest for everyone if you take those reviewer comments and pop them into a table. You can do that in a Word document. You can do it in an Excel document and then copy it back into Word. But it is easiest if those are done in a two-column table that says, here's what the comment was by which reviewer, and here's what our response to that reviewer is and how we've handled that in this manuscript. Time is really of the essence. It, it takes a while to get a manuscript from submission to seeing it in print in the journal. The best thing that you can do to make that process go more smoothly is to try to do it within the time asked for by the journal. The faster you can get it done and get it done 
in a good fashion, the faster the turnaround will be on our part. So that's the part that you have control over. We know that people's lives get busy. We know that sometimes things either come at a really terrible time or unforeseen things happen. And it's okay to ask for and communicate with your handling editor to ask for some time. But to the extent that you are able to keep things rolling along, please try to be timely about your revisions. And I have the privilege of handing things over to Lexi now, who's going to tell you about what I think is a unique opportunity that our journal offers for people out in our field. Lexi? Thank you, Susan. Um, and you took the words right out of my slide. So um, some of you might have been wondering what a mentored editor was uh, when I introduced myself as such. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about what the position entailed and some of the benefits that I found from it as I reflected on the position. And I highlighted some of those benefits as well in the editorial I wrote for the December issue of JNEB, if you're interested in reading that. So first of all, what is a JNEB mentored editorship? So this is a two-year program. Um, and during those two years, you're mentored by associate editors and the editor-in-chief on reviewing and managing manuscripts. So the time commitment for this position is about six to 10 hours per month was my estimate based on my experience. But, um, and this was something that I felt was very manageable. I'm an assistant professor. I'm, I'm busy just like everyone else, but I felt that this time commitment was quite manageable. And quite frankly, the benefits just outweigh how much the time commitment is. Um, so like Susan mentioned, this is a really unique opportunity. Um, I do not know of any other opportunity like this in our field. And this is an opportunity to learn from those at the highest level of the editorial process. I am working with the associate editors and the editor in chief who are high quality scientists. They know their field really well. And to be able to learn from that is really a, a, a gift, I believe. <clears throat> so as I've been um, the mentored editor, I've been able to refine my knowledge and skills in research methods, scientific writing, and scientific evaluation. I've been able to evaluate a variety of papers from um, using scientific methods that I'm less familiar with. So that has really been able to broaden my expertise and familiarity with different scientific approaches. So I've really valued that as well. Um, the editorial process can be really complicated. And um, as I was, um, be before I took this on and when I was a reviewer, I really didn't understand that process as well as I do now. Um, and so because of that, I feel like now when I'm writing and submitting my own manuscripts, I know exactly what to expect. Um, I know exactly what reviewers and editors are expecting of me too. And I feel comfortable with the process as well. So I'm comfortable asking questions when things arise. Um, it's just, I feel like it's made me a better reviewer as well as a better writer. Um, this position has also expanded my professional network and increased my visibility as an early scholar because I've been able to work with the associated editors. I've um, developed a great professional relationship with um, everyone. And I've also been able to um, uh, work with the journal committee as well, which has a lot of other really great people that are really dedicated to this field as well. So I feel like through those experiences, I've been able to greatly expand my network 
and being the mentored editor, things as simple as um, having the um, mentored editor announced on the website or participating in different conference events related to JNUB has really increased my visibility as well. Um, because I'm part of a lot of these meetings, the journal committee meeting, the JNUB monthly staff meeting, um, and I've, I've also been able to provide input as an early scholar. Everyone's helped me feel so welcomed and comfortable. And so I really feel um, great, or I really feel comfortable being able to provide my insights into uh, the decision-making process. And this really is a path to higher level opportunities. So um, as our, um, I should say when I apply as a board of editor, I feel pretty confident that I already have the skill set that's needed to be able to review papers and be a high quality reviewer as a board of editors and hopefully eventually an associate editor as well. So I hope that that has provided a lot of information about the position and a lot of reasons why you should um, apply for the position. And if you're excited about it, then you're in luck because um, they're um, actually accepting applications now for the next mentored editor position. I have put the link in the chat. And so um, part of the required qualifications is experience as a peer reviewer. And so if you haven't reviewed yet, I highly encourage you to review for um, JNEB and provide high quality um, review and learn how to provide high quality reviews as well so that you can stand out when you apply for the mentored editor position. So thank you so much. And I'll um, hand it back to Lauren. Thanks, Lexi. And actually, as you, as you were talking, I flipped up the next slide that provides the required qualifications. Um, I know you can't get the hyperlink there for the uh, application form, but Lexi put that into the chat, thankfully. Um, and if you have questions about it, I'm sure Lexi would answer those questions. Um, but you can also email myself or our uh, mentored editor chair at um, medchair at jneb.org. And actually, um, Lexi was the inaugural uh, mentored editor. And we have another mentored editor in uh, who just started in August, Caitlin Fox, who is um, currently going through her rotations as well. And I really, this is an exciting opportunity. Um, it, it's a, it's, we won't have to think too much when we hear, see Lexi's uh, application for a BOE coming through um, because she's been trained very, very well and has, has done great in this position. So truly, if you're interested and you meet these qualifications, please reach out and um, also take a look at Lexi's um, editorial from December. It's a really nice um, summary of uh, Lexi's experiences actually in the position. So please, please do that, reach out. The other exciting opportunity um, that was alluded to, uh, or actually mentioned quite directly, um, is the uh, option to become a reviewer for JNEB. We're always looking for reviewers for all paper types. And if you're not quite sure if you are qualified to be a reviewer, reach out. Um, that seems to be the theme of the webinar today is reach out, ask questions, communicate with me, with the rest of the editorial um, staff about becoming a reviewer. And if you're not sure, we'll, have, we'll help navigate that process for you. Um, there are many different opportunities if you don't feel um, that you 
could review for a research article, a research brief, but GEMS is right up your alley, we can do that as well. What we do ask is if you were to reach out and say, I'd like to become a reviewer and um, it's agreed upon that you can be a reviewer, you would be put into the system by our editorial manager, Emily, who's on the call today. Um, and we would ask you to provide um, your classifications on there so that we know it helps us as um, the editorial staff to be able to identify you for particular papers that might come through the queue that you would be best suited for as a reviewer. So truly, if that's something that you're interested in, please reach out. We are definitely looking for reviewers and, and it helps the whole process. When the editorial staff has a, a difficult time trying to find a reviewer um, or people to agree to review, it's nice to be able to have other options in the queue as well and it helps to keep things on time. So um, if you're interested, please reach out. I also wanted to let you know that um, we have a lot of recognitions and awards for reviewers, for authors um, that I think I don't know that everybody knows about. So I'm really excited to talk to you about some of these recognitions and awards. So you may notice in uh, when an issue comes out for JNEB, you'll see um, articles that are listed as editor's choice. And then you might see the little earphones next to it where that indicates that there's a podcast associated with that. Um, and those uh, choices are made by me as the papers come in for lots of reasons. The novelty, the target population, the rigor of the methodology. All, there's a lot of factors that go into um, my decisions about those editors' choice articles, but it's a really good way for you to get the word out about the work that you're doing. And that podcast, and I'll, I'll let Jared talk in the, in the next slide about this, but the podcast is highlighted in a lot of different avenues um, for you to take a, a look at. We also have the silver, gold, and platinum authors, um, depending on how many times you've uh, published in the journal over the course of a year, you're identified and you're recognized it at the annual conference as well. So um, your efforts are well noted and well recognized um, by the society and the journal. We also have a best research article, best research brief, best gem. Um, best gems not every year because we don't get as many gems per year, but it might be every two years you might see a best gem and, and a best research brief. Those authors, when they've been identified, and that's a decision that is made through the journal committee and through the editorial staff, um, when uh, your paper is chosen in one of those categories, you are a speaker in the webinar series follow the following um, semester. So um, please keep that in mind that um, we are really recognizing the excellent work that's being done um, by you. And um, we want we want to be able to celebrate that in our webinars and our annual meeting. And then lastly, we also have our reviewers of excellence. So if you are a reviewer and you are on time with your reviews and you give, you give good quality reviews and you accept the call when we uh, um, send out the invitation, um, you're identified and recognized as a reviewer of excellence too. So there's a lot of ways that the journal um, recognizes this work and wants to celebrate you. So keep that in mind. Um, and one of the ways we get the word out is through all of our different social media um, contacts. And uh, Jared is actually going to talk a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, so we want JNEB to be your home journal and a regular part of your professional life. Is there so many ways that JNEB can help you with your research and practice? I personally benefit from all that JNEB has to offer. Uh, there are many great reasons to stay engaged with and connected to JNEB throughout the year. Uh, please visit the JNEB website for JNEB news, author guidelines, review, reviewer guidelines, which have been highlighted here during this webinar. Uh, we also list the calls for papers. Uh, we have podcast links, as Lauren mentioned. We feature our editor's choice articles. We have other featured articles and a lot of other great content there on the website. We also do regular postings of content on various social media platforms. So we regularly post on Twitter or X at, at JNEB Online. We also post to LinkedIn and Facebook. We also, as Lauren mentioned, have a featured article podcast, which we're really excited about. And I see this as a super easy way to keep up with excellent JNEB articles in a 10 to 15 minute podcast. So super th easy thing to listen to on your commute or when you're walking around with your headphones. Uh, just an easy way to keep up with awesome research that's happening. Um, so this is published at YouTube. So we do have a YouTube channel. Um, so you definitely describe or subscribe to that. And that's uh, at JNEB online. Uh, it also is posted to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and sometimes if it fits within the the time time audio limits, it's posted directly on LinkedIn. Um, please subscribe to all the great JNEB social media platforms. We'd love to uh, have you engaged and connected with the journal in those ways. And now I'll turn it over to Amy for a wrap up and questions. Well, I just want to thank everybody, all of our speakers today and all of the attendees. Uh, we're going to have some time right now to address any answers or not any questions that you have with answers. And at the very end, there'll be information about getting continued education. So there was one question that was already submitted that I'm going to share. I believe everybody can view it, but if not, we'll share it just so everybody is on the same page. But before I do that, I just want to remind everybody as you've already heard, uh, reviewing the guidelines for authors is, is really key in the submission of your paper. It will help streamline the process, potentially expedite the process. But at the same time, if you're not already a reviewer, as mentioned, please consider signing up because reviewing really does provide additional insight that you might not gather otherwise. And at the same time as a reviewer, we have resources uh, for reviewers that are at your fingertips to sort of provide you guidance on reviewing and some of the items that we're looking for, um, even as associate editors in your manuscripts. So let me take them a minute right now to answer one of the questions that we already have in the Q&A, and then I'll share the answer that's already been provided. So the question was about the length of a research article, particularly a qualitative research article. And the question was that they are already at 30 to 32 pages. Do they need to reach out if they're exceeding a 30-page limit? So depending on um, what type of article it is, it does have, we do have guidance in terms of page limits on those, and those are all inclusive for the most part. But we understand that qualitative data takes a little bit more space um, to describe, and there is a bit more of an allowance on that. But as Pam, Pamela has mentioned in her response, that you know, streamlining it as much as possible, being concise as much as possible is important. Um, but you could mention specifically in your cover letter why your manuscript might be a bit over the recommended page limit. 
So thanks, Pamela, for adding that to um, the response. Okay, so now we do have some additional time. Uh, if others have questions, please add those to the Q&A um, and we will address those as we receive them. Okay, so there's another question. Um, my research is about nutrition and dietetics education in higher ed. Should my implications be about research and practice or can it be for education in practice? Does anybody in particular want to take that one? I can uh, I can uh, start with that part. Um, and I think this is a great question around putting the implications for practice within the context of the space. Um, so with articles around a nutrition education and higher education, the, the pathway for all that would be that your scientific gap is going to be around what's the challenge you're trying to address. How do you then make that happen? What did you find? And then how do you use that to improve future, say, dietetics education? Um, so anchoring that all the way through from start to finish, um, means that your your summary is going to be around what is it that we know and how does it fill that gap? And then what would we do next in the scholarship of teaching and learning to take this to the next step, to apply it, to determine what we would need to do next to make that an even better implementation within the educational system? So everything that we do is going to go from that background, what's the gap, all the way through to how can you use it and move both practice and research forward within that space? That's a great answer, Chris. And, and you made me think of one other sort of time-saving thing for people. When we're writing about uh, discussions, oftentimes um, people like to use as sort of their closer sentence for a paragraph that this would make a great thing for, a few, or this could be done in future research. Save yourself some time. Take that stuff that you want to talk about for future research and make sure it always goes in the implications section. Because if it comes to us in the discussion, we're going to ask you to move it. Thanks, Chris and Susan. Those are really good points. And I do want to um, reiterate about this particular section. Sometimes it's actually left off an in initial submission. So one, make sure you do include this section. It is a very important part of the manuscript. Um, and as mentioned, kind of what's the next phase or what's the next steps. And if you have recommendations for future research, this is the place for it. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next question. And that is, other than the mentored editorship position, is JNAV working on initiatives to support early career researchers who are from historically marginalized backgrounds? If so, could you please describe them? Lauren, I don't know if you want to address that or someone sure. else from our group. Sure. Thank you for the question. And um First and foremost, right now, the uh, mentored edi editorship, which is fairly new, uh, and the process is the main initiative that we're working on right now with early career researchers. We do work very closely with the journal committee. That's our policy arm of the journal, where we have um, DEI, a DEI committee where we are intentionally um, having discussions about this. But at this point, 
we don't have something specific um, related to this, but the mentored editorship is certainly a, a mechanism that we um, that we have to be able to address this. Sure. Thank you, Lauren. I wonder, Lauren, if I might just add that you know part of um, our process at JNEB is to bring people in as reviewers and then elevate them to the board of editors and then open up the possibilities for becoming part of the editorial staff. It doesn't have to go through that flow, but that that's how it often happens. And so I think one of the things that, that we're very aware of is that increasing our reviewer pool and making sure that that reviewer pool is inclusive is the long-term way that we're going to build inclusion up through the journal committee, up through the board of editors and on into higher places. And it's been a matter of discussion for several years now. And, and that's an intention and a purpose that we're following. I also wanna to add to that, thank you, Susan, um, that if you, if you do attend the annual conference, um, we have, and I found this in my own experience this year, really, when we had rapid reviews where uh, authors who had papers that they were interested in um, just having a, a, a look at by an associate editor, we we got a, a many people who came in. And that was also a way for us to not only talk with the authors, but also talk about becoming a reviewer. And, and again, to Susan's point, helping to work people up through this, the system so that we were able to um, get a nice, I get um, a diversity of, of researchers, both as authors and as reviewers. Yeah, and I, I'd echo, I encourage you to attend those sessions at conference if you're able to attend the conference. It was a really nice discussion to meet with prospective authors and, and answer questions. So um, encourage you if you're gonna be at conference to take advantage of that opportunity. So thank you both Lauren and Susan. I'm gonna move on to the next question here. And the question is, how does the journal handle print reprint requests for authors who are completing a thesis dissertation and want to include their research that's been published in JNEB in their thesis dissertation. So from what I understand, they've already published it in our journal and now want to include it in their thesis dissertation. Um, I don't know if, if Lauren or Susan want to take that one. I'm not sure I fully understand the question. Um, I apologize. Um, maybe we can get some clarification. So handle print or reprint requests for authors. So you've published a paper already and you want mm -hmm. to then include that as a reference in your thesis or dissertation? I'm interpreting and it was maybe part of their research. They published it in the journal and but it's technically still part of their dissertation. So now they want to put it in their dissertation, but I'm assuming there's some copyright items related to that when you're when you're uh, uploading your dissertation, but I don't know if this attendee wants to add any clarification. It was submitted anonymously, so I'm not quite sure who submitted it. But I would see this as a citation, absolutely a citation in your dissertation or thesis um, would certainly be fine to do that. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, if it were included as, you know, in some places uh, a publication is a chapter, 
Correct. or or a or a amalgamation of publications becomes a chapter. And then, as is more and more common at universities these days, that whole dissertation becomes um, copyrighted mm-hmm. by the university. And and I'll be honest and say, we haven't. Re- I haven't been part of discussions to think about it on that end. It's more often that the dissertation gets copyrighted, and then the manuscript comes to us. <laughs> and in that case, it's fine. There, there's no competition there. I, I actually think the other way around is is something that we probably ought to just have a discussion about and and tick the box on. So thank you for the question. I agree. I, I think your explanation, Susan, was addressing where what they were trying to um get out from what my interpretation is. And then there was another attendee that actually um added a suggestion that they ask permission, ask the, the permission of the journal to allow them to include it in their yeah. dissertation. But I do wonder if you need to ask your university, whoever's handling those, if you need to. I've had a student do that before and we didn't have to ask permission. They had already published something in JNEB specifically and used it for their thesis. Um, and then we have one more question in the chat and I believe we're gonna have to wrap up here. But the question is, do you need to have had several publications prior to serving as a reviewer? Prior to serving as a reviewer, no. I think um, some some experience is important in reviewing. Um, And as it was mentioned, just even with the mentored editorship, having um, just a little bit of experience is fine. But... um, Really, as a reviewer, um, we're here for you to learn, to be a reviewer, quite honestly, um, in our journal. So if you are um, interested and you're not quite sure if you've um, got the skills to do that, reach out. Um, As you get up in the process, though, if becoming a board of editor is something that you're interested in doing, then yes, you would have um, many reviews under your belt before um, you would want to... um, um, seek out that role as a board of editor. And and again, I'll briefly just add to that. I remember the first time that I was asked to review an article and I had a clutch of panic because I thought, what do I know about reviewing an article? And it turned out to be a fabulous experience because I did what I did and I didn't, I didn't see everything, but then I got to read the other reviewers' comments. And I learned so much by being part of the full reviewer process that I became more confident and skilled in my own reviewer expertise. The the second thing I'm gonna say, and this is a shout out to mentors who might be out there. We continue to have the opportunity to do a mentored review where a graduate student who you feel is at the place where they can begin to take this on does the initial draft, and then you review it with them and submit. So I highly encourage you to do this with your graduate students because that's how we sort of prime the pump for our future reviewers. Well, that actually brings us right to the hour. So thank you all for one attending and also for 
all of our speakers today for providing this important information. But Paul's going to give you just a wrap up about your continuing education here. Yes, uh, thank you, Amy. And again, thank you to all of our presenters today. Uh, for our attendees, uh, again, please complete the survey you receive uh, when I close out today's session. Uh, your feedback is greatly appreciated. Uh, be on the lookout for that email with today's recording, uh, handouts, and the CEU certificate. Uh, as a reminder, uh, next Monday launches the Spring uh, Journal Club series, uh, beginning with nutrition education programs and implications from the field. Uh, with that, that uh, concludes today's session. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.